You might want to have your Bibles open to the passage that we're looking at today for instruction, perhaps admonishment, perhaps correction. John chapter 15. Gospel of John chapter 15. that Jesus gathered his disciples in the upper room and it was there that he washed their feet and we learned a number of important lessons from that. He conducted the uh, Passover which he reinstituted to the Lord's table. It was at that time that the betrayer was identified as Judas Iscariot, and he left the twelve, and the eleven were left with the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ went on to teach them and instruct them in ways to give them encouragement and hope at his soon departure, and left words of encouragement to them as to the fact that Indeed, he's going to be away, but he's not going to be away. He's another comforter, the Holy Spirit's going to come. But even in the fact that he's going to be away, he's preparing a place for them, and they would join with him. And he brought that wonderful hope and encouragement that we also, by the Holy Spirit, receive today. It then says that having taught them there, he left the upper room and went down. It was now nighttime. And he was taking the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he himself knew that he would meet with the personification of evil itself, Judas and the guards. En route to the Garden of Eden, it is very likely, although we're not certain, it is very likely he would have passed through vineyards. There were vineyards in that area. That's a fact. And it might have been just like his nature, just like his style, as he had done so many times as he walked with his disciples. As he went through the vineyards, he went, Hey, I'm the vine. <laughs> you are the branches. And he taught them about that unique relationship that the Christian has to Christ. And now we continues to instruct his disciples. And so we pick up the events as John portrays them in, cha in, in chapter 15 in verse 12. And I'm going to be reading verses 12 through to 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, 
for the servant does not know what, the ma what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Before we get into the meat of this passage, I want to point out something in the structure that is important to our understanding. I want you to notice that verse 12 and verse 17 both include commands. Commands from Jesus to the disciples to love one another as he loved them. And then in the middle you have verses 13 to 16 that contain a certain content of te teaching. I wonder if you could put that slide up for us, uh, please, Donna. I want you to see how this really works. You have this bracket that occurs, and this is a common structure. It's a common structure in biblical writing. You have this bracket, or in, in exegesis, in biblical interpretations, it calls an inclusio. You have a bracket. You have, a, you have verses 12 and verses 17, each containing a command. And so that puts a bracket, that frames the passage. And then the verses in between form the content. Now the interesting thing about this structure today is that the verses that form the bracket, the commands to love, seem on the surface to have nothing to do with the content in the middle. In other words, the content in the, in the middle is all about Jesus now calling his disciples, his servants, slaves, uh, or servants, friends. Do you see that? And yet the brackets contain Jesus' command to love others. And this structure is designed by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, it has a message to us. So my intent this morning is to ignore the brackets for a moment and just talk about this marvelous content whereby Jesus now looks upon his servants and now sees them as his friends. And then by God's grace, secondly, ask the question, how does that relate to the brackets? How does that relate to the brackets? So before we dive in, let's pray. From an old, old hymn. Father of mercies, in your word, what endless glory shines.
forever be your name adored for these celestial lines. Divine instructor, gracious Lord, be now and always near. Teach us to love your sacred word and view our Savior here. Amen. So my first point, and there's only these two, is to look at the content. In other words, I've entitled The Dignifying of the Servants. The Dignifying of the Servants. What was the relationship of Jesus and the disciples prior to this? Well, if you were to just go back a few chapters to chapter 13, we read these words in chapter 13, verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. So quite clearly the scriptures are portraying the relationship of Christ and the disciples. They are learners, students, and they are slaves, servants of the Lord. That's their lot in life. That's what they understand to be true. In fact, Luke takes it even to a more stark reality. In Luke chapter 17, verse 10, he says, So you also, when you have done all that you are commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. At the end of the day, up until this reading, the disciples of Christ are simply servants. The Greek word is doulos, which is aptly defined as slaves. That's the lot in life. That's normal. If you're working for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the best you can see yourself is a, is a servant of the Most High God, which is not a bad title. But that's who you are. At the end of the day, they are servants. And then in verses 13 to 16, suddenly Jesus changes the whole perspective. These slaves now are suddenly dignified as friends. Do you see that? That's the theme of that content. Jesus is now clothing these slaves with the grace of being a friend. And I use the word intentionally, dignifying. He takes what is ordinary and common and he dignifies it. He brings dignity to it that is absolutely unbelievable. That Jesus the Christ would call someone a friend who is only really a servant. I believe there are four areas that Jesus addresses in this relationship. The first we see in verse 13, greater love has no one than this than someone lay down his life for his friends. The relationship that Jesus now imagines is that these are just not slaves, they're now friends, and 
His love is greater towards them. There's a greater love towards them that can even be can even be evidenced in the fact that he was willing to die for them, which he will in a few hours. If you have a friend, you might love them, and following the precepts of Scripture, you might suggest that love them enough, you would give them a glass of water on a very hot day. But Jesus says, my love for you, my friends, is greater. It's a greater love. I'm willing to die for you. I give my life for you. So the first principle or perspective that we get is Jesus now calls his servants slaves or servants friends, and he it's it, it's at a, a love level where he's willing to die for his friends. Remember, they're still servants. What master would do that? What lord of a house would do that? Have you ever known an employer that would do that? To elevate you from the position of employee to the position of friend and love you so much they would die for you? Do you see how absolutely otherworldly this love is? They are objects of his greater love. Secondly, he clearly calls them, in verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And then verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I've called you friends. Generally, the servant in an organization isn't seen as a friend to the boss. Servants don't usually get to hang around with the boss after work, enjoy his company, receive his blessings. A servant gets a wage and goes home. That's it. Not so here. These disciples receive a relationship, an intimate friendship with the Savior. And doing what he tells them to do, following his precepts, allows them to simply enjoy a greater intimacy with him. An intimacy with the boss, in this case, is better than a wage. Intimacy with the boss is greater than just pay at the end of the day. I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. 
I'm willing to die for you. I'm willing to enjoy an intimate relationship with you. Thirdly, these friends or, or servants are brought in as, as, as people who have the intimate confidence of their master. No longer do I call you servants, but the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I've made known to you. The worker on the floor doesn't usually know the plans of the company and all the perspectives that are in the future. The worker on the floor is usually clueless when it comes to the overall direction of the company. This boss says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. I'm prepared to die for you. I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. I want to have an intimate relationship with you. I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. I'll tell you everything that's going to happen. I will not withhold anything that you should know. Of course, we know this to be true, that Christ's disciples who have the Word of God and the Spirit of God are given the thoughts of God. In fact, Paul was to say in 1 Corinthians 2, you have the mind of Christ. Who has such a relationship with the person they work for? And lastly, number four, in verse 16 we read, You did not choose me, I chose you. Uh, stop right there and, and just let your mind go uh, wild on some imagination. Imagine somebody who is sitting in some place and, and uh, not knowing what to do, and also, all of a sudden the head of a company comes and says, Hey, I want you to work for me. How honored you must feel. How humbled you must feel. So Jesus goes to these slaves and he says, hey, remember the terms of employment. I chose you. You didn't choose me. I found you where you were not involved in my business. I called you into my business. But it, he says more here. He says, I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Or as the King James says, remain. I've called you into my business, quote unquote, and in your work, I am determining that you will be successful. In fact, whatever you ask for in relation to the success of your job, I will give it to you. That's what he says here. These servants were granted significant and successful employment under this boss who now calls them friends. So do, do you see this, brothers and sisters, how Jesus clothed these servants with the grace of friendship 
so much so that he's willing to die for them, so much so that he draws them into an intimate friendship and relationship, so much so that he shares all his plans with them, and so much so he guarantees their success. Who wouldn't want to work for a boss like that? So then why, my next sec my second point, why did Jesus, why did the Holy Spirit communicate this through John? Why did he bracket this grace of friendship with the commands at the beginning and the end to as I have loved you, so love one another. What's the relationship between these two commands and the content in the middle? Because on the surface it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for someone to, to, offer, to, to, to make a command to love one another and then change the topic so to speak, and ask, and, and then talk about the wonderful grace of friendship with Jesus. And then end it with another command to love one another. I actually think the answer to that question provides for us the main point of the content. Frankly speaking, John doesn't tell us why. would love to be able to point to some verse in here and say, oh, well, this is why he did it. So the best that I can do this morning is offer a reasoned answer. And the best you can do this morning is test what I say to be true or not. That's where we're left. Because we must wrestle with this. We can't ignore it. I remind you that the same author, that just human author that wrote this, and divine author, but the same human author that wrote this, wrote this, the scripture reading that we read this morning. 1 John chapter 4. I invite you to turn there. 1 John chapter 4. read the whole thing earlier, but I just want you to focus on verse 16 to 21 now. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this love by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother... He is a liar, for he who does not love his brother, whom he, cannot, who he has seen, 
cannot love God whom, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John wrote this at a time that was not very far away from the time he wrote the gospel. Although the events are several decades apart, we believe the Gospel of John was written just before the letters of John. And his heart and his passion carry through. Do you notice the similar things? God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. The similar themes of loving one another as Christ loved us. If you're a person abiding in Christ, i.e. the branch in the vine, if you're a person abiding in Christ, you are also then a person abiding in Christ's love. And you will certainly know, and you can certainly testify, that God's love is a perfect love. put it in several words, John is teaching that the love of God is so profound that it removes the fear that comes with being a slave or a servant. There's a, there's a confidence that comes when, you, when you're abiding in Christ and abiding his, in his love. There's a confidence that comes from his perfect love that casts away the fear of a slave and a servant. So worried that if they do the wrong thing, they'll be fired. If they, if they make a slip up, they'll be disciplined. They're walking on ice. See, John in John 15 and, and in 1 John 4 is picturing the same relationship the same God of love, the same one that takes the, a person who's a servant and a slave and dignifies them into a, a love relationship with God that knows no equal in life. But notice John's point in 1 John 4. Our love for one another flows out of God's love. Do you see that? If you love, the source of that love is God. God's love flows out of a relationship with him to one another. Indeed, John says that if we don't love one another, we don't love God. We love because he first loved us. Do you recall that? We love because he first loved us. In other words, my reasoned opinion of why those brackets bracket the verses on the friendship that Jesus has with his servants, my reasoned opinion is that John bracketed that marvelous uh, description of Christ's love with the two commands 
to emphasize this point. Because of his great love for us, we then must love one another. Whoever loves God, whoever enjoys this relationship of Jesus be, being a friend to Jesus, if that is true, it is also true that you must love one another. Otherwise, that's not true for you. Are, are you seeing this? So it makes perfect sense to me why John would bracket this, because he wants to make the point that he makes in his letter that if that relationship, if you are indeed a friend of God, then you will love one another as Christ commanded. And if we don't love one another as Christ commanded, then we can't claim to be friends of God. Imagine the boss of a company. Imagine the boss of a company having extraordinary love for his workers. These workers are not just staff, they're friends. They commune together in his home. Instead of rushing over to get paid after work, they rush over to his house to be with him. This boss is someone who tells them everything that's going on. They're fully aware of all the ins and outs of the company. This boss loves his employees so much that he equips them in such a way that their work has guaranteed success. He calls them friends. He treats them as friends. They are showered with extraordinary affection, so much love that they know their boss would die for them. He treats them all the same. There's no difference. There's no inequality. There's no racism. There's no sexism. There's no favoritism. Imagine a boss and a company like that. Imagine the boss one day who has been treating his staff this way, deciding to come down onto the floor and walk around. And he spots a problem that's occurring over in one place. And as he draws nearer, he hears one employee speaking in derogatory, mean, unkind, and unloving ways to another employee. How would that boss feel? Wouldn't he say, have these people not learned anything from being in a relationship with me? I mean, do they even know me to talk to one another like that? Have they not appreciated any of the grace that I bestowed upon them, namely, I no longer call them slaves, but my friends? Would it not feel like the ultimate contradiction for this extraordinary boss, having showered his servants with the gift of friendship, 
to go down onto the shop floor and see two of these employees fighting. Would it not seem a total contradiction? Thus, the great description of Christ's friendship with his servants, his disciples, is bracketed by John with the command, you are to love one another as I have loved you. I think it's very reasonable for a disciple of Jesus who has experienced this extravagant, merciful love in that he no longer calls them slaves, but friends. Not to feel constrained to freely love others. Those who are beneficiaries of that kind of love from Jesus ought to love others in return the same way. In fact, the evidence of my appreciation for Christ's love will ultimately be expressed in my love for you and your love for me. Beloved, I feel constrained not to say any more. I feel constrained to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes and just take a time to think about that. Let us just contemplate the reality that our appreciation or lack of of Christ's amazing grace to us is evidenced in how we love one another. Would it not be appropriate for you and I to examine that? Test that? Might it be true this morning that two believers who are hearing this message find themselves hating one another? fighting with one another, showing contempt for one another. If that's true, what does that say about your relationship with Jesus?
Heavenly Father, for those of us who are in Christ, we are well aware of your grace. You no longer call us slaves, but you call us your friends. die for us, but you have died for us. You've taken the penalty of our sin upon yourself so that we would not die. You've given us your word and your spirit so we know all your plans that we need to know. By your Holy Spirit, you've drawn us into an intimate friendship with you that is unknown in this world. And Lord, you have guaranteed that all who are in Christ will bear fruit. The kind of fruit that remains and that anything we ask according to your will, we will receive it. Father, knowing in our hearts that that is true, I pray that we would leave here prepared to love others as Christ has loved us. And may Jesus Christ be praised. And may Jesus Christ be glorified in our lives. And may we know the joy of being called a friend of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me please and receive the benediction. you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. God bless you.